So last week I talked about how um, I basically was stealing Dan Deckard's main points from the week before, kind of doing the same thing again. And I told you I was going to do that uh, in that this passage of Scripture, sure, it falls within um, its own little section. If you read your Bible, it probably has something along in the title of um, I Never Knew You or something like that. And it's its its, its own paragraph, its own section. Although I think the main points are connected one to another. They're still there. This is still Jesus preaching. And remember two weeks ago, there are two roads. There's the broad path people, and then there's the narrow path people. And the broad path people are the people that are, are marching ever closer to destruction. And the narrow path people are the people that have found their treasure and delight in Christ. And they're marching now to the life in the kingdom. And their ultimate end will be with Jesus. And last week we found out one of the, one of the dangers before entering the narrow broad path is that there's going to be false prophets. They're going to look a lot like us. They're going to sound a lot like us. They might even be able to say the right words. They might even have some of the same actions. But ultimately we found out that they could be bad trees. Even some of the good things that they're doing in the world are not coming from a renewed identity in Christ. Rather, they're coming from within themselves. And that makes them a bad tree. So this week... It's not false prophets who are the danger. It's our own selves that are the danger. And in particular, deceiving ourselves that we're disciples when we're not. Anybody feel uncomfortable yet? It's like minute five of the sermon. There is such a thing as fake discipleship. There is such a thing as being able to say the right things and doing lots of good things and yet hearing from Jesus one day, depart from me. And so you might say, I don't really want to be that kind of person. Well, neither do I. And that's why it's really important that we listen to this text today and we get the biography of somebody who's going to be surprised on judgment. But here's the text, Matthew 7. Follow along in your Bibles if you have them open, but if not, I have it on, behind on the screen. Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. And I suspect that if they were anybody's but Jesus, we might have a riot on our hands. What do you mean I can do things in his name? What do you mean that I can cast out demons? What do you mean that I can do miracles? What do you mean that I can prophesy and speak in his name, and yet he doesn't know me? It doesn't make any sense. That's what I'm hoping to try to understand today with you. But one of the best ways that I can think to introduce this text today, and I was was really just racking my mind, and I couldn't come up with any stories. You know, there are some sermons where it's like, no stories today. And that's kind of where I'm at today. So I'm, I'm, by way of introduction, I want to draw your attention to verse 28. I don't have it on the screen behind me, but if you have it in your app, if you have your Bible, I think this is the best introduction that I could, 
could have come up with, and I'm so thankful to the Lord for showing it. But in 28, it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, now you got to understand we're skipping a text here, but it says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Crowds were astonished. And this week, that word really stuck out to me, this, this idea of astonishment. And in many ways, I think that that might describe for us the two types of people who are um, listening to the sermon. There are the people who hear the words of Jesus and are astonished. And there are people who hear the words of Jesus and say, well, that was sure nice teaching. See, when's the last time we read through the Sermon on the Mount and were astonished at what Jesus said? Not just like, oh, that's nice for a good life, for a good Christian life. Yes, I will be salt and light. Yes, I will try to bless people. I will try to do all those things. See, it says that not only the disciples were astonished, but the crowds. Absolutely everybody who heard the Sermon on the Mount, their reaction was to be mouth wide open, gobsmacked. I can't believe that he just said these things. And in a way, that's almost like a litmus test for us. As we came along the Sermon on the Mount, were we ever slack-jawed? Were we ever mouth wide open, astonished? See, I think one of the tough parts is these words of the Sermon on the Mount have become sort of rhetoric for us, not only within the church, but in culture. Turn the other cheek. You've heard turn the other cheek well before you ever step foot in church. You heard the golden, root, the golden rule long, long, long before you ever came to church. Chances are your parents told you, treat other people the way you want to be treated. So we, we hear all these virtues of the Sermon on the Mount, and we fall in the danger of believing that the Sermon on the Mount is mainly about good people, bad people. The good people do the good things, and the bad people do the bad things. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to drop a bomb right in that. And he's going to say, even the people who think that they're good and can do all the stuff on the outside and even do stuff in my name, they're not actually good because inside they're not good. Now you have to understand, to a Jewish audience who is listening to this, to people who were doing all of these outward signs to show that they were righteous, to hear Jesus come along and say that, wait, you can do all of that and you're still going to miss it, would have been absolutely astounding. It would have been crazy. Now, one of the interesting things about this is I looked up in uh, multiple commentators we talked about this word, astonished, and in the Greek, it's got a passive tense to it. Now, I'm not smart enough to know what passive tense is right away, so I had to look at some more commentators and look at some other things. But basically, it carries the connotation of not only were they astonished, the more they continued to think about it, the more and more astonished they got. Isn't that interesting? The more they molded, it, the more they thought about it, the more that they pondered the words of Jesus they kept on going in their astonishment. And so what I plan to do today is give you three things that I think Jesus says in this text that are absolutely astonishing that maybe we've missed before. And I hope by doing that that we will uh, magnify Jesus. And now it's going to take me a long time to get to the first one. So you've got to be patient with me. And the other two will come back. They'll, they'll come a little faster than that. But I want to draw your attention to the profile of let's, I think it's helpful in our minds to think about maybe these false evidences that people are going to bring to Jesus on the last day, right? 
So if you look for me in chapter 21, uh, sorry, in verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So we've got these people who are saying, Lord, Lord. Let's just hold that for a second. And then they do three things. They prophesy, they cast out demons, and they do miraculous deeds. Okay, that's the profile of someone, or at least in this text, there are four things primarily, or five things if you want to look at it, and I'll, I'll explain to you, that this person or these people are doing and yet they miss it. And so I think it's important for us to look at these five things and then we'll drill down from there to motivation, which, brothers and sisters, what I present to you is going to be the most challenging part of the sermon today once we get there. But let's look at these people. They're, see, now remember, they're, they're coming before Jesus, aren't they? And they're saying, look what we did. So let's look at what they did. First of all, they say, Lord. Is it wrong to say, Lord? Definitely not. <laughs> to be a disciple, you've got to say, Lord. Now, this Lord, uh, so this, this word, um, every time it's, it's used in, in the New Testament, it refers basically to the lordship or the divine nature of God. So these people aren't saying, Lord, in the, um, you're just somebody in authority. That's not what they're saying. They're actually saying the right thing about Jesus. They're saying, Lord, as in you are the divine one. You are God. They've got it right doctrinally. In their minds, they know who he is. In their minds, they know who he is. They're saying, Lord. They're saying the right thing. And I wonder if that doesn't describe for us a condition that many of us have in that we have ascended to Jesus mentally, but not in our hearts. Where we can honestly say, yes, I understand and I know, certainly, that Jesus is the Son of God. I know it. I read the text. I read the Bible. It all makes sense. It's all very logical. I know that's who he is. And I've read the doctrine, and it all makes sense. The doctrine makes sense, and I believe that doctrine. I do. There's a key difference in knowing the doctrine and knowing the God of the doctrine. It's by far different to say, I know who Jesus is mentally than to say, I know who Jesus is experientially because I trust him. See, no one can call themselves a disciple if they don't say, Lord. You've got to say that. But not everyone who says it gets it. See, there's no other means which you can be a disciple. You can't say, well, I don't call him Lord, but I don't do bad things. No, it doesn't work. In order to be a disciple, in order to follow Jesus, you've got to understand who he is. You have to know that he's Lord, and you have to follow him. You do have to have correct doctrine. You do have to know the right things. But knowing them and doing them are very, very different. And can I tell you, it is by far easier to know something and feel comfortable with it than to know something and make a change. See, here's what's interesting. Who else got it right about Jesus? Demons got it right about Jesus, didn't they? See, they got it right before any of the disciples did, actually, if you read the Gospels. The demons are able to say who he is 
before the disciples even understand. But guess what? Did knowing who he is change their nature? They stayed devils, didn't they? Their right understanding and their right mental acknowledgement of who Jesus was was not enough to save them. And we have people and we have theologies and we have churches that preach, as long as you believe it, just say it and then you're saved. But what they fail to mention is that if you say it, but your heart doesn't back up that you actually believe it, you've got nothing. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. There are people that are actually hiding behind grace in the church. And that should be scary because I believe we should be saturated with an understanding and a knowledge of grace. But grace that comes from knowing that we are not good enough, and so we look inside, we realize that there's something missing, and we say, Jesus, only you can feel it. It's not, I read all the books and so I know it, and I'm just going to apply that knowledge. And because I know the knowledge, I'm good. This will tell you. That's what they're saying to him. The Christian life is not a mental ascent to the truth. It is a heart issue through and through. It's an internal life that's changed from the inside out. Isn't that the example of the tree? Can a tree feast on its own fruit? That would be silly. A tree brings out fruit from what's inside as it's connected to the roots and it gets fed. Out comes fruit. So it is in the Christian life. It's an inward reality. So brothers and sisters, if there are some people in here that are more concerned with being right or more concerned with, you know what, my life is a wreck, but at least I know the right things and you're trusting and knowing the right things, can I, call, can I, can I just ask you to reconsider? Just reconsider. Knowing it in your mind and having a mental ascent to Jesus is not the same thing as knowing him experientially, as knowing the power of the resurrection in your own life. They say, Lord. But they say, Lord, Lord. Okay, not just once. Say it twice. See, in the Bible, and I can think of one place in particular, there's more, but I wanted to point out one. When Jesus is expressing his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to God, who, who does he call God? He says, my God. And does he stop right there? He doesn't, does he? What does he say? My God, my God. My God, my God. As he's praying, as he's addressing. That's as he's on the cross, my apologies. My God, my God. See, it conveys emotion in the scriptures. Anything, anytime that something is doubled like that, it, 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 it shows affection. In the Old Testament, it's Absalom, Absalom. It's my son, my son. And here we see people saying, Lord, Lord. So not only are these people who have the right mental uh, doctrine or have the right thinking or can identify who Jesus is mentally, they're quite emotional about it. Now, when's the last time you've seen somebody be quite emotional about the truth of something and ever had any reason to question the validity of that belief or that they were actually disciples? What if it's me, guys? What if week after week I get up here and I preach and I say something and I, and I get really passionate about it, but I've just read it and it's somebody else's words. And I've just communicated emotion because in the moment I just feel emotional about this. That's, that can happen. There can be people who are quite emotional and quite uh, 
zealous for what it is that they have read on paper, but what hasn't broken through to the soil of their heart. So not only can you say, Lord, you can say, Lord, Lord. You can be quite emotional about the fact that I know the right things. I'm feeling more uncomfortable again. Now you might say here, well, Adam, that's verse 21. And at the, verse of, at the end of verse 21, it says, okay, yeah, of course, you know those people, but it says the people who do the will of my Father. So it doesn't matter what we say. Um, it's about what we do. I just got to do the will of my Father and I'm good. So I don't even need to know the right things about Jesus, but if I'm the kind of person who does the will of God, then I'm good. And the will of God is obviously just follow all the things on the Sermon on the Mount and try really hard my best to do them. And as the measure I do them, then I'll be okay. That's not what the end of verse 21 says. And there are people out there that will say that, and there are people that will try to argue from that text. You don't actually have to know and understand the right things about Jesus. You just got to do the right things. And I don't, I don't buy that for one second. And here's why. Immediately after this understanding of knowledge and emotion doesn't save you, the three things that this person does doesn't save them either. So knowledge and emotion, not going to get you there. And we're going to find out in a second, prophecy is not going to get you there. And casting out demons aren't going to get you there. And doing the miraculous in other people's lives aren't going to get you there. Anybody got any actions bigger than that? That they want to put forward as evidence that you understand? What's prophecy? Prophecy is basically someone who speaks on behalf of God. I think in our modern day times, it's someone like me. It's someone who stands up and someone who preaches and actually prays for the Holy Spirit to help them, give them guidance. You know, it's possible to actually ask the Spirit for help and you actually not know Jesus. You can do that. You could. So you can prophesy. You can teach. You can say many, 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 many marvelous things. You can express the wonders of the gospel to people. That's what, that's what he's saying here. Did we not prophesy in your name? That means, didn't we do something? See, now, if this person didn't actually prophesy, if they didn't actually say the right things about God, do you think that they would be giving it as evidence on the day of judgment? No, they wouldn't. I think we have to read rightly in the text that they actually believe that they did something of substance. They, they actually are quite uh, drawn in by the fact that they have said the right things about God, and because they've said the right things, surely God's going to notice them. But it doesn't in this particular case. So there are many people who say many, many marvelous things that will be stunned in silence. When they hear the words of Jesus that say, depart. Well, Adam, you say, how can that be? <laughs> this does not sound right. I don't like what you're saying up here. I don't like it either. So prophecy. Then casting out demons. Wait, wait, okay, okay, say Now listen. This is not just like figurative demons. Like, you know, this guy had an addiction and I counseled him through it. That's not what this is talking about. 
This is talking about demons. Like you ever watch them scary movies with demons in them? We're talking about those things. Now, I don't know those movies because I only watch Disney and romantic comedies. I refuse. Not because I think there's anything terribly wrong with them other than the fact that they scare me. I will not sleep for weeks. And so I say, put on Aladdin again. But this is really the casting out of demons, and it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus sends out his disciples in, in, in the Gospels, and who is among the disciples at that time? A certain somebody who's going to betray him and gives evidence that he doesn't know him. It's Judas. Judas is among the disciples, and it says that all the disciples came back and reported to Jesus, and they were quite exuberant. They were quite excited about the fact that they drove out demons. So here we have this person in Judas Iscariot who was able to cast out demons literally, not figuratively, literally cast them out. And they comes back excited. Oh, Jesus, even the demons, even the spirits obey us. And what does Jesus say? Don't rejoice that the spirits know your name. Rejoice that your name is in the book of life. So even then Jesus is saying the miraculous if it's not tied to a deep connection with me as your Savior, what's the point? Now, there are people, many, many people around us in our culture, not only outside the church but inside the church, that will tell you the miraculous is evidence of your salvation. They will tell you, look, I speak in tongues. Or look, this is how God used me. Or look, I was able to heal that person. And that's evidence that God, that God used me. And not only is it evidence that God used me, it's evidence now that I actually know him. It might not be. Isn't, that, isn't, this, isn't this hard to hear? You could be used to actually cast out a demon and yet your heart can be far from him. How can it be? And yet it's what he says. I'm not making it up. I'm even more uncomfortable now. And then it says mighty works. Mighty works. This is like somebody who helped someone. This is like somebody who did the miraculous in their life that you were used in a way to bring miraculous healing to someone. Or maybe you actually preached the gospel and their life changed. It's possible for you to preach the gospel, to tell people that you believe in something, and they change and you remain the same. You can actually be used by God like that, but be dead on the inside. And that is terrifying. For me, as a preacher, as somebody who's going to sit up here, I hope for years to come and declare the works of God, I couldn't come to a more challenging text ever in my life. I can say many, many marvelous things. You could come to my office and God could use something I say to unloosen something in your life, something you've been held bondage to for years and years, and yet I can be far from him. How is that possible? So you might be saying to yourself right now, well, Adam, if the person who prophesies and the person who's emotional and the person who's got the right doctrine and the correct everything and they do mighty works and they even cast out demons... If they're not in, how am I? Well, see, now here's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not about good people, bad people. The Sermon on the Mount is about disciples and the religious. Okay? 
The moment we understand that the Sermon on the Mount is contrasting what life in the kingdom looks like for disciples or for those who are merely religious, the better we will be. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because Jesus isn't going on when he's talking about prayer. He doesn't say, hey, the good people pray, but the bad people don't pray. Remember what it says. Both groups are praying. One group is just praying the right way, and one group is praying for a selfish motivation. Both groups are giving to the needy. Both groups are fasting. Both groups are holding on to the Ten Commandments. Both groups are doing it. But the key difference is the disciple has Jesus at the root of their actions, and the religious person has their outward obedience as a record that they want to show off to everyone else. So it comes down to your motivation. How do I know that? Look in, look in uh, chapter 6, verse 2. This is Jesus when he's talking about the needy. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, um, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, that, that word praised, in the Greek, its translation is the glory. You see, for the religious person, who's using prayer as a means to get glory from others. Their prayers avail them nothing. And why? Well, their inward motivation is that they would, what, what they want to re- receive from other people, glory. When they give to the needy. And it says the same thing in, when they pray. Chapter uh, 6, verse 7 says, They think that they'll be heard for their many words. And so we have this religious person who at their very center is empty on the inside. Empty on the inside. And so they use their religious activity as a way to fill themselves up. You see... I hope this doesn't shock you, but every single person in here, whether you are now or you were at some point, you were inwardly empty. You were trying your best to fill up and get glory for yourself from everyone around you. See, that's the human condition. It's something that we're discipled in at a very young age. And I say discipled in the right way. You see, I'm the kind of kid I had a basketball hoop at my house. And uh, one of my favorite games late at night, I had, a, I had a light on it, was to play Last Shot Wins. Now, that's a game that I play by myself. I had some friends. Don't feel too bad for me. But it was late at night, and I would play this game. And I would be like, 10 seconds on the clock. Bongraff gets the ball. Right? But here's the key. I was playing to save the princess and get her love. Just so you know. That's the kind of game that I was playing. So I would be in the, in the driveway, and I'd be crossing dudes up, you know, doing that kind of thing. And I would always be like, 10 seconds left on the clock. Barngraff gets the ball. Oh, they tried to swat it. They missed it, and I would shoot the shot. And if I made it, I'd be like, woo, the girls love him. And if I missed it, I'd be like, oh, he was fouled. <laughs> Put 10 seconds back on the clock. See, at a young age, I really struggled with self-worth. 
I'm probably not alone in that. I didn't know who I was. I had a low self-esteem. I was like a kind of a chunky kid, kind of. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Let's just put it there. I was trying to be mild. Um, and so I would sit and play a game by myself. And then if I made the shot, I'd feel good about myself. What would I really want? I wanted people to be like, you're awesome. You're great. You're good on the inside. And listen, for you, it might not have been basketball, but I guarantee there's something that you've done. You ever cut out newspaper clippings of yourself, of your athletic adventures, and put it in a notebook? Why are you doing that? Are you doing that because you're like, want my kids to see it one day so they know what their old man or their old lady, old lady, now that's marriage. <laughs> or their moms. No, no, I'm just saying that's what they use. I love my wife. She's not here. I'm going to be in trouble. Why do we do stuff like that? Well, at the end of the day, we want to break out the newspaper article so we could show other people and say, see, I am good. What Jesus is saying on that micro level, that the things that you did when you were a kid, that inner longing, that inner want, you do the same things with your religious activity. You pray so that other people will be like, nice prayer, bro. You preach the word so that people will pat you on the back. You heal people of their wounds so that they'll say, wasn't he used by God in a mighty way? You understand the difference? The religious person is voraciously empty. Always empty. Always needing to use other people to fill up. And may I suggest willing to use God to fill themselves up as well. Man, it, wouldn't it be crazy to be that close? To know the right things, to be quite emotional about it, to be used, but to miss Jesus. And it can be done. Because the motivation on the inside's never been changed. And so religious activity remains just that. And how do we know that that's true? And this is a staggering truth. On the day in chapter 22, and I'm just going to tell you, on that day, what day is that? Can anybody tell me? Judgment day. So it's judgment day. This is when you're going to want to finally say, here's all the things, or here's the reasons, or here's why I should get in. And what do they do? They don't say, it was all about you, Jesus. Everything I did, every righteousness of my own that I tried, no, 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 that was filthy rags. What I rested on, holy, and nothing else was your work. I rested and I treasured on Jesus. That's not what they say. Look what we did. Look what we did, Jesus. They're putting out their report card, aren't they? They're giving him his resume. And they're saying, these are the reasons I should get in. Last week, I didn't define a word for you because I was going to do it this week. And it's, it's up in verse um, 15. And it's the word ravenous when it's talking about ravenous wolves. Okay, every time that you see that word 
ravenous in the New Testament. It is always um, interpreted as blackmail. All throughout the New Testament, if somebody was ravenous, it, was mean, it meant that they were blackmailing. Okay, and so you can, they changed it here because to read it and say, inwardly they are blackmailers, that doesn't make any sense. And so you can see that the people who, who write Scripture sometimes are going to be people who have to try um, their best to put it together. But I think they should have kept it blackmail. You know why? Because that's actually what they're trying to do. See, they're not coming to Jesus based on Jesus' sufficiency for salvation. What are they coming to him with? Look what I did for you. Folks, this is spiritual blackmail. They're saying, look at my religious activity that I not only got right, but that I was quite emotional about and I was quite zealous about. These things are saving me, they think. And so they put great energy and great effort into doing them. And so they come before Jesus and say, look what we did. Prophecy, I said, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful things that I did. And what do we get? Or what does that person get? Depart from me. I never knew you. That's difficult. That's difficult to hear. Those are people whose motivation is to fill themselves from the outside in. We're back to the tree. How are we supposed to be filled? How are we supposed to produce fruit, disciple? Outward in or inward out? I hope that you know and understand and believe that it's inward out. But you know what? The trouble is that when some of us heard the gospel for the first time, you know how we responded? Tomorrow I'm going to try real hard. Man, I know that's true. I know that I'm a sinner on the inside. I know all these things. And you ascended to that mentally. And you said, tomorrow when I wake up, it's going to be different. Watch, you'll see. I'll do different things. My motives are going to change. I'll be better. But you know what you didn't do? You didn't take a step closer to Jesus. And anyone who doesn't take a step closer to Jesus has missed it. You've just flat missed it. So what's the astonishing thing that Jesus says? The first of three? Don't worry. The next two are fast. You got to lose your religion if you're going to follow me. You got to lay it down. You got to lay down religion and you got to follow Jesus. Well, so you're saying, Adam, does your motivation save you? You're talking about motivation. Is that actually what saves you? No, it does not. It doesn't save you. How do we know that? Well, let's look at verse 22 again. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? The me in that verse. On that day, many will say to me, we already, I already asked you earlier, what's that day? And that day is judgment. Okay? Now think for a second. What did Jesus, Jesus just say? You know who's going to judge you? 
It's going to be me. I'm the one that's going to be there. Now, everyone agrees, virtually everyone has to agree on this thing, that God is the judge. I mean, even Tupac Shakur believed that. That's right. I grew up in the 90s, so i got to talk about Tupac a little bit. But there are people in, in culture all around, they'll talk about, only God can judge me. And it's agreed upon that God can judge people. Why? Because there's an assumption that God is three things. First, infinitely good. Second, infinitely knowledgeable and has infinite power at their disposal. And you know what Jesus is saying? Yeah, that's me. It's almost casual. It's almost like, of course. So think about this. This Jewish audience that their whole life has believed that their works and their efforts are going to get for them from God what they've always been trying to get from other people, namely glory, namely recognition, all of these things. Do you want me to change mics, bro? You sure? Okay. Jesus is saying, yeah, that judge, that's me. And what criteria do you think Jesus is able to judge people on? Did you know him? Did you know him? Who knows better than Jesus if you knew him? See, so the religious person puts their stock in their outward actions in order to merit some kind of life from God. They hope to be able to present it to him. But the disciple says, I had no other foundation except Jesus. See, what this person should have said was no matter what I did, I did it all for Jesus. I'm going to change it. Can we get this one? All right. Let's get this thing out of here. Let's preach on the handheld. You guys hear me better? Okay, good. I'm really, I apologize about that. Made me kind of lose my spot a little bit too. So I'm going to try to get through that. So we're talking about on that day, there's Jesus and he says, yeah, that judge, that's me. And so he's going to know who his disciples are based on the criteria of, did you know him? And so my question most naturally today has to be, do you know him? Not what are you doing for him? Not even what you believe about him, but do you know him? Does your belief translate into wanting to know him more? Are you the kind of person that hungers and thirsts after righteousness? It's astounding that he says that. Astonishing. I'm actually the judge. And this one, I think, is the most astonishing of them all. It's the final thing that I want to draw your attention to. And it's in verse 23. It says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Okay. Now, so far in this passage, when we're talking about the two roads... Destruction is at the end of one of the roads, correct? Now in the next section of the tree and the fruit, the bad tree is ripped out and thrown into the fire. And in the example after this, starting in verse 24 and going to the end, the house that's built on sand is going to be demolished. 
Okay, so now you might say to yourself, okay, Adam, yeah, I totally understand in the, in the end times when I'm judged, if I'm not found to be a believer, I'm, I'm going to be punished. You know that's not what Jesus says here, right? He says something by far more astonishing. He says, depart from me, which has to mean the thing that you've always wanted in all your wanting, the thing that you've always longed for in all your longing, the thing that you've always tried to fill with activities, the glory that you've always wanted in your heart, the emptiness that you've always tried to fill with other people, the way that you've sought after things in your love of other people, the way that you have tried to fill yourself everything you ever wanted or needed or desired was supposed to be for Jesus. And there's going to come a day when your heart knows it. When before Jesus, you know that there's nothing else except him that could fill the longing of your heart and you're not going to be able to get it. That, my brothers and sisters, is the fear of judgment that we should have. Not that there's going to be some place of torment, but that your heart will know that nothing but Jesus can satisfy and I miss my shot. That terrifies me. It doesn't terrify me for me because, listen, I know who I am. And I know I'm a disciple, but it terrifies me for people who believe and are trusting in their works or are trusting in their mental ascent to God and they're not trusting in Christ because there's going to come a day and the day is coming when they will know what their heart has been longing for. It will finally be clear, oh, that's what I did that for. And unfortunate for them, the words are depart. Now, I have to say this. Man, I went long again. I apologize. But I have to say this. It's at this point that we can get into some dangerous territory. We can respond in some unproductive ways. The, the only productive way that you can respond to this message, in my opinion, is to move closer to or towards Jesus. But if you're in here and you're somebody who is naturally doubtful of your salvation anyways, or you're naturally someone who thinks, I have anxiety about my salvation anyways, and every time you read this passage, you're afraid that you're broad path, that you're that kind of person, and you heard this message today and you said, that's it, I knew it. I'm a goner. Adam just confirmed every suspicion, I'm fake. If that's you today, can I just tell you that's not what Jesus just said. He did not just say that you're fake. You can struggle with doubt as a believer and still be a believer. How do we know this? When Jesus was resurrected, came back from the dead, he visited his 11 disciples at the time, not 12 anymore, he visited his 11, and there were two responses, and the responses were this, all worshipped, some doubted. All worshipped, but some had some doubt mixed in. And did Jesus tell those guys, hey, you better clear up all that doubt before you come over here, or you're not worthy of me. No, he didn't say that. He accepted their worship and then gave them the great commission to go into the world and make disciples. So there are doubtful people that are actually given the commission to make disciples of other people. So listen, if Jesus doesn't disqualify you on basis of your doubt, neither should you. Draw closer to Jesus, not further away. Don't shrink back from Christ. Take a step towards him. Because guess what we hear? Do you remember 
Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. So do you have a hunger in your heart for righteousness, but you're a little doubtful? Pray and ask the Lord to fill you. Don't shrink back. Another danger is that you could hear me and say, man, that was really good. That does describe me. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and it's going to be different. You'll see. Man, can I tell you how intoxicating that is? How easy it is to do that? So I feel really, really, really convicted, Adam. But tomorrow, that's when I get it all right. That's not what moving near Jesus looks like. Moving near Jesus looks like the person who understands their condition and is poor in spirit. Moving to Jesus is that person who mourns over a loss in their life and their heart mends back together for more room with Jesus. It looks like the person who's meek and understands their condition before the Lord and is merciful to other people. It looks like the person who is bitter but over time gave Jesus control and because of that grew to give people forgiveness because they knew that never could there be anything more egregious than their own sin before the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I hope you do. And again, this has been a tough one for me. I'm going to be honest with you. There, there's, there's lots going through my mind and lots more that I can say, but I just I want to end on this. We're promised that if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will be filled. And so, for you today, any step except towards Jesus is the wrong step. And that's just all that I can say. And I hope that the Spirit will make that true in your life and that you understand the movement that you each need to make in your personal life. So, I'm sorry I went long. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That is true. That is from you. Challenges us. Helps us in our time of need. Shows us areas in our life in which we need to change. And we just pray now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would work in our lives. That each one of us would deal with this text in the way that we need to, Father. That you will help us all to make a step towards you instead of away from you. And so we pray it in your name and ask that you would make it true for us. Amen.